Hello, and welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on June 17th, 2021. Dr. Jun Yang is a professor in the Department of Earth System Science at Tsinghua University in Beijing, China. He received his PhD in 2004 in Environmental Science Policy and Management from the University of California at Berkeley. His specific interests include urban ecology, urban forestry, and ecological remote sensing. He has published more than 100 scientific papers. Dr. Yang serves as an associate editor for urban forestry and urban greening and serves on the editorial board of agricultural and forest meteorology, frontier in sustainable cities, biodiversity, landscape architecture, and China urban forestry. He was a member of the Science and Research Committee of the International Society of Arboriculture between 2010 and 2013. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast, Dr. Zhang Yang. We're delighted that you can join us today. This is very exciting because I don't think our listeners know this, but I used to work with you at Temple University. Yeah, yeah, thank you, you for inviting me. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. And the work that you're doing in Beijing is is really outstanding, and your professional uh, publications is is very impressive. Over a hundred of them, and I, I know that our listeners will want to know what is happening in Beijing with trees, and and I know that they've done a lot. Uh, in the last 15, 20 years, and we want to hear about what they're what they're doing. So uh, let, let's go back to Beijing. Uh, we both know that uh, Beijing uh, has turned to greener and greener uh, since uh, probably 2002, uh, the year uh, after Beijing uh, winning uh, the right to hold the 2008 uh, Summer Olympic Games. Uh, so the city uh, started a movement trying to make uh, Beijing greener. So i just give you some numbers. In 2002, the green space coverage in the city is uh, around 39%. Uh, but uh, by 2008, uh, it jumped to 43%. Wow. So the, yeah, the government spent a lot of energy resource uh, trying to uh, make the, uh, the Beijing greener. Uh, just there are several uh, famous examples, such as uh, the Olympic Forest Park, uh, which uh, was built uh, from uh, demolished uh, residential areas. 
So the size of the park is 680 hectares. So basically that's uh, two central parks. So it's uh, all built from uh, scratch. So that's the first period of greening effort. So uh, since the 2012, the Beijing started uh, the first uh, milling movement. Basically, you know, they want to plant about uh, 70,000 hectares of trees in four years. So between 2012 and 2016, uh, they planted this many uh, you know, trees. So basically, that's about uh, 205 central parks, 54 million trees in four years. And in 2018, they started the second phase of this project. That means another, uh, you know, 67,000 hectares of trees, wetlands, and uh, urban green spaces will be planted by 2012. So in four years, and another uh, 67,000 trees. So I think all those numbers tell you how seriously uh, Beijing uh, is working to uh, improve green space and planting trees on the ground. That's amazing. That is, I've got goosebumps from the numbers that you're throwing out at us and the amount of hectares that have been covered in that short a time. And to think that many central parks, <laughs> that's unreal. How does your work fit in with the greening movement at the university where you're at? How do you connect yourself with what's happening in the community? Well, it's a, a really good question. Uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, so my major uh, products are, you know, papers, journal papers and books. Uh, so many of the contributions to the academic world. Uh, but also I try to apply my uh, knowledge to be part of this green movement. For example, um, when I first came back to China, uh, that's in 2009, the most uh, trees planted on the street or in the parks are those, you know, top uh, settlings. So in order to save the transportation cost and also to increase the survival rate, so they cut the, the canopy of the large settlements off and then uh, transport them in the bare room. This is basically easier to transport and also, you know, to reduce the evapotranspiration when you initially are planted. So to increase the, the survival rate. So basically you have a, a pole uh, put uh, in the ground and you have several branches, uh, two or three major branches and a very small canopy. And the tree seedlings need like three or four years uh, to you know, recover this small canopy and to be really functioning. So at that time, I made all those arguments that we should use uh, the whole canopy tree seedlings in transplanting, even though the, the cost is uh, higher. But uh, in terms of long-term uh, uh, survival rates, and also uh, in terms of a disease, to avoid all those, you know, rot uh, disease, uh, and also to, to have uh, higher ecological uh, benefits, we, we should use both canopy uh, trees. And uh, I'm very happy that, uh, you know, people are listening. So now, uh, in the new phase of the uh, planting program, 
Uh, there's a requirement in the technical guideline that requires people use those, you know, for canopy trees as, you know, the planting materials. Uh, so that's probably just a one example of how I get involved uh, with this green movement. And also I, you know, go to this conference and all those uh, professional uh, meetings uh, to make my point. So we should select the better species uh, that can tolerate harsh city uh, environment and also will not cause much troubles uh, in the long term. Uh, for example, we, we, we probably avoid uh, the species that has very brittle uh, roots. And we don't put uh, plant them on the street, so people or you know cars will not get you know hit by those falling branches or even the, the trees itself sometimes pull down. I think probably that's uh, what I, I I do most effectively as a researcher. But also I, I got involved with you know the Beijing uh, Bureau of Landscaping and Forestry when they design uh, this building uh, moose plantations. I served as a, a technique expert uh, to you know, suggest you know, planting uh, techniques and also to, to do monitoring of the growth. And you know, I'm deeply involved with this process, and I'm happy I can you know, contribute to this process. You, you were describing, I guess, the older practice when trees were getting moved out of nurseries was basically remove all branches and ship them out as single poles. Is that what you were describing? And that you were able to convince people uh, that the secondary limbs needed to be preserved during transplant? Oh, that's a good question. I, I don't think uh, I uh, single-handedly you know, persuaded people to do this, but uh, I think uh, you know, there's a group uh, of people, you know, including me, uh, we're trying to uh, make this point. We should not plant trees, uh, as, as you say, cut down most uh, branches and only leave a very short uh, stem of uh, uh, several uh, major branches, probably three or four uh, those, you know, uh, branches. Uh, so yeah, yes, we argue that uh, we, we should uh, use uh, the whole canopy you know, tree seedlings uh, in planting. And, uh, you know, those uh, newspapers, uh, they uh, interview me and those papers get uh, reported on the newspaper and the people read it. And also the government notice it. And uh, I think uh, through all those efforts, uh, there are also other researchers and uh, producers, they are making the same, same arguments. I'm wondering if that came from an old technique used in Europe when they would do pollarding of trees and only leave a few branches or stumps to create new growth very quickly. And that, that was an old technique I know they did here in the city of Philadelphia. When they did pollarding, they would cut pretty much everything. They'll only leave three or four big branches and cut everything off. And you get this fast burst of growth, but it doesn't give you much of a canopy and it gives you weak wood. And I'm wondering if that was something that they saw in Europe or Europe saw in China and vice versa, because I know that in Italy, it's done a lot. And there's a close connection between China and Italy right now. And I'm wondering if that might have been an influence. We cannot exclude all you know, those hypotheses. 
but for this type of practice, it has been uh, used in China for a very, a very long time. Okay. Probably since uh, last uh, century, uh, since 1940s. Because Beijing is located in a very unique uh, uh, geographic zone. So uh, the water uh, is, a, is a problem here. We have water shortage problem. And we also have very strong wind uh, in spring, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the sandstorms. So uh, in the past, they, they did this practice to, you know, to reduce the vapor transpiration and also to, you know, save the, the water. So you don't need to irrigate them very frequently. But I think that's probably the origin of this practice in, in, in Beijing. That's very fascinating. And is it because of the, um, the winds? Is it coming off the Gobi Desert? Is that correct? That's right, yeah. I was reading in some of the articles that the city of Beijing was putting so many trees up because they're trying to stop the desert from expanding. Is that true? That used to be the case. I think probably uh, in uh, 19, since 1950, uh, the Beijing uh, has a shortage of forest cover at that time because after a very long uh, war with Japan and also then followed with the civil wars, uh, most forests were you know, destroyed either by war or by people who use that as a fuel. So actually, you, 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 at that time, we, we had a desert that is quite near Beijing, probably only uh, dozens of kilometers away. But uh, since uh, last uh, 1950s, people are planting around Beijing. So all those mountains uh, near Beijing uh, get, you know, really, you know, covered by uh, plantations. So now if you come to Beijing, you, if you take a, you know, fly into Beijing, you can just see all those green mountains. But uh, in 1950, you know, people that, it's all yellow mountains, you can only see those hills and mountains. So uh, quite, uh, quite a tune, yeah. It sounds like you're someone that is numerically oriented, that you like to uh, quantify, and I'm wondering, uh, I'm assuming you saw much better transplant success rates when canopy was left intact? When canopy left uh, intact, you probably need a more extensive uh, after-planting care. Because I say the, the unique climate here is in the spring, uh, when the root system is still like not fully uh, recovered and be fully functioning. As the wind is calm and also the, the, the weather is warm, and you have if you respiration in the canopy, but you have very limited capability of getting water from the ground. So you often have those dieback branches. So that's the reason why you know people are led to you know if they want to save water, they want to save the maintenance, they trying to cut the canopy off. But if you use uh, the for canopy trees, you need to irrigate them. Uh, to provide uh, you know water in the early in the spring when it began to sprouting. June, is there a lot of site preparation typically with a, a tree that's getting planted in Beijing? Are you cutting through sidewalk in order to find an area with some kind of suitable root zone establishment or that would be suitable for root zone establishment? Uh, in most times, there's a very good planning, uh, urban urban planning. So uh, they will plan for the growing space uh, in advance. 
uh, they, they was uh, say if they're they need to plant straight trees, uh, they will you know set uh, set uh, you know the beloved growing space according to all those you know guidelines. Uh, how large yeah yeah the pit is. I see. So it's so it's in the planning. It's in the planning that, and and I guess also with your background that you can say, you know, this is how much this tree is going to need with a planner. Are you talking with a planner? Because I know that you're involved with lots of different magazines and lots of different professions. Because of what you do, you have the ability to help create a, a, a um, baseline for the best practice for planting trees. I would imagine that that's actually taken up by the planners and it benefits the trees in the long run. Well, you know, I, I really wish they can listen to, to me or listen to you know, all those, you know, uh, arborists. It's always a fight between the planners and the arborists. Mm -hmm. We always say, well, the tree, they need a bigger, you know, space to grow. But they always tell you, well, in order to put this tree here, this parking lot here, uh, we can only leave this space to you. So this, it's kind of like a compromise. Initially, yeah, the, the planning space for, you know, trees is, uh, is kind of small, but uh, through those many years of all of those continuing uh, outrage and, uh, you know, meeting with uh, people uh, from the two fields, uh, they, they, now they are putting larger, you know, uh, planting trees and um, a more protective, uh, like grid uh, right. on, on the, right. uh, to, to cover the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about uh, species? And I guess this is a very uh, geocentric question, but can you compare uh, Beijing's climate to some other cities that we might be familiar with? That's quite a quite a challenge. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> so good at the geography, um, but uh, Beijing is a typical uh, continent. Uh, climate. So means it's uh, cold in the winter and uh, warm and humid in the summer. Yeah, so sometimes I, I'm thinking that Philadelphia is, is similar. <laughs> quite, yeah, quite warm and humid in the summer and a little bit cold in the winter. Actually, I see the same three species both in Beijing and uh, in Philadelphia, uh, wow. such as, uh, you know, yeah, the Japanese uh, Pagoda trees are uh, used as a sweet trees. Yeah. And also the planting, uh, London planting trees uh, is very popular in Beijing, but also very popular in Philadelphia. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? The London plane trees? London plane? <laughs> they are yeah. happy everywhere. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's like a universal tree. <laughs> yes, yeah. And also recently we have a lot, get a lot of red maple, you know, planted. Yeah, it's become popular here. Uh, you mean uh, nor uh, red maple with a North American lineage? Yes, that's right. Wow. Yeah. That's really interesting because they don't do Good very luck. well in the city here, but I guess if you have um, more open space, they would do okay, right? Yes, yes. Well, they yeah. have a pretty strong surface root system. Right, right. So if they have a big open space like a park, you can put them, yeah. right? Right. Well, let me ask you this. How about Ilanthus altissima? Does that ever make it into anybody's palette of choices? Well, Ilanthus uh, is a very popular tree here. We probably don't uh, plant uh, those, you know, uh, invasive uh, type of uh, Ilanthus altissima 
uh, as you saw in Philadelphia. But here we plant a, a kind of a, a, a cultivar of that species, which has a very strong uh, central leader and grow upright and uh, red tolerates of the uh, road pollutants uh, and everything. Send me some cuttings. <laughs> I don't know whether you know this, John, but we have a problem with spotted lanternfly right now in Philadelphia. And they've been cutting down the Alanthus trees because they actually host the, the insect. That's been a real problem here in the city. But and of course, at the same time, I'm appreciating them more than ever. I mean, they're, they're survivors, lush green foliage. That was how it was described when they were first getting brought over as ornamentals. So uh, I think they're going to be back. And uh, this might be preliminary, but I think spotted lanternfly is taking a pretty dramatic uh, downward turn. The nymphs are not out nearly as much as they were last no, year. No, I think it's much like uh, the gypsy moth of the 1980s. Right. One question that Eva and I always come back to with these mega massive tree planting projects is supply and demand. And how is uh, Beijing sourcing millions of trees like they are for cultivating and then bringing into, into the city? So this kind of mega project, uh, Beijing cannot produce uh, all the seedlings uh, it lives alone. So they, uh, the city gets those seedlings from the regions around the Beijing. You also know that Beijing is uh, it's not the largest city, but uh, also probably the number two or number three uh, largest city in China. So the lands here are very valuable. That means not many uh, local uh, nurseries are in operation. But is there a big market for you know, seedlings just near Beijing? So in the Hebei province and also in the Shandong province, uh, they produce lots of tree seedlings. And uh, I think uh, most of our seedlings used in Beijing are from outside of uh, you know, Beijing, from the surrounding areas. Government certainly noticed uh, there's some problems with this practice uh, because some uh, settlements, they are from uh, places where um, are warmer than Beijing, so they probably cannot you know, survive very well. And also Beijing is trying to improve you know, the biodiversity. So they want to use more uh, local native species. Do they do they do a lot of breeding um, in China, plant, uh, tree breeding, like they do here in the United States? Well, that's a good question. Um, I will say yes or no, uh, because uh, they do lots of breedings, uh, but not in the same sense as uh, you know what the U.S. Uh, companies are doing. Uh, here uh, we we have many small uh, nurseries and growers. Um, just to give you a number, so by 2000, 2019, in China, there are more than 400,000 uh, nurseries and uh, companies that, that can uh, supply seedlings and uh, seeds. By average, those companies hire like uh, 25 people. So it's quite small, most of them are very small. Uh, so when we say uh, the breeding, they probably will, cannot invest lots of money or energy to breed new species, new cultivars. Uh, but uh, 
once there is a, a species of cultivars that are very popular are in the market, all those small uh, growers and uh, companies and nursery will quickly, you know, free those uh, planting materials, make a large supply, saturate the market uh, very fast. Uh, so I think that's the situation here. That's interesting because since you left the U.S. and, you know, you were at Temple, we have lost so many nurseries within the region because the land is worth more than the, you know, the nursery, the nursery just can't afford to stay in business. And so their land is gobbled up or there were so many people who reached retirement and there was nobody to take their place that they sold the land. That has created a problem here with distribution, planting, even exploration for new plants. There's people who are doing exploration, but mainly in the botanic gardens and the arboreta, as opposed to the universities. Again, we have lost a lot of nurseries. So we're actually, and we were talking about this the other week on one of the podcasts, that we're actually down 3 billion uh, seedlings. And with all the forest fires in California and and the demand for trees because of the environment and global warming, we are not producing nearly enough for what we need. And there is a shortage here. So right now we have such a shortage in our region. In fact, I was just talking to a grower today. She said, well, you know, you have a plant list, but don't think that that plant list is going to be what you get because there's that many shortages. So what you're what you're saying makes a lot of sense, you know, having a lot of smaller nurseries that probably can deliver closer to a site because they're closer to a, a place where that needs a group of trees. We were talking about, you know, maybe we have to have tinier nurseries. Maybe we have to have smaller nurseries, even in people's backyards, even if they grow, maybe if they grow 50 trees, that's 50 trees we wouldn't have, right? Well, I think uh, the situation is... Uh different uh, here because uh, in China we have uh, this fast urbanization uh, you know, in you know, the past decade and it's still ongoing. Uh, so there's a huge demand for you know, tree settlements uh, and that demand sustains all those small uh, farmers, uh, small nurseries, growers. But uh, now we kind of see the, you know, the slowing down of the urbanization and also see the, you know, uh, the reduced uh, demand for all those citizens. I think some of uh, those uh, small nurseries may, may well, you know, uh, uh, get, you know, kicked out of this market, you know, because of the, the low demand. But uh, you are right, um, have, uh, many of them can sometimes buffer, you know, the impact of the, you know, the market, because there always are some, uh, uh, nurseries and uh, you know, growers, they are producing the seedlings you need. It's not like if you only have several large ones and they run into problem and they shut down and you have nowhere to buy those. Yeah, no, wait, that's exactly right. You know, we, we have a couple big ones and, and you know, they're mainly out on the West Coast now. Yeah. And, and Or down in the South, down in the South and on the West Coast. Yeah. So and that you have to worry about shipping and they're shipped bare route. Um, do you do a lot of bare root shipping? Yes, yes, yeah, a primary uh, way to trans- transplant 
settlings. Okay, so if you're bare root, that also means a, a shorter planting season. Uh, is that correct, June, that it would be late winter, spring, where you're going to do that kind of planting? Because you wouldn't be able to do it throughout the summer, right? Yes, yeah, with, with bare root, you, you, you can have very limited you know, uh, windows of planting. Yeah. But uh, here uh, in China, they are doing uh, planting all the seasons, you know. But you are right, if they do those plantings uh, in summer, uh, they, they will use a material with those root balls, or very large uh, root balls, uh, carefully uh, you know, produced in you know, two or three years, and then transplanted. So here we do, you know, planting all, all, all the time, summer, spring, fall, <laughs> mm. Early winter, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the techniques that you have there are, are probably different than what we have here. Not all of them, but you might have some other ones that we might not have. Well, I don't think uh, the techniques are, are, are really different. It, it, it's probably the the human power where the labor labors you can invest uh, uh, in this type of techniques are a little bit different. As I say, if you use those. Uh, planting material with a large root balls. You have to start to prepare for transplanting you know, two or three years before you know, the, the transplanting days. That's a huge re requirement for human uh, resource. So here, uh, because we have a, you know, a adequate supply of laborers, so we can do that. But due to the labor supply, we, we can try out those more uh, intensive uh, secure techniques, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if, that, if that's very much like what our country was like when we had all the immigrants back at the turn of the last century when we had so many nurseries here on the East Coast that labor was, there was a lot of labor around. So you could move big trees, like Princeton Nursery used to move big trees, right? Yeah, well, I was going to say uh, mechanization also, Eva, really changed because uh, where it used to be uh, a lot of hand digging, you're right, and the beautiful work with uh, burlap and twine and uh, drum lacing. Then mechanization came along, and uh, not only was the tree getting plucked out of the ground in seconds by a tree spade, but it would get settled into a wire basket. So. You can see right away what used to take, you know, a half a day to, or let's say, uh, you know, you, you might be able to dig two or three trees in a half a day if it was the right kind of soil. Now you've got a machine that's doing the job, you know, in less than 20 minutes. And I, yeah, it's, I think we are kind of, well, fingers crossed that the nursery techniques and the industry is, is going to adapt because um, I think, you know, here in the States at least, we watch tractor trailers and they might be able to get 40 uh, bald and burlap trees on, but you know, each one of them comes off the truck and it's, they're 200, 200 pounds. Uh, there's a lot of impracticalities uh, with that type of system, along with the fuel that is consumed when you're uh, you know, bringing them up from Tennessee. I have a friend who has a nursery who uh, you know, has his own tractor trailer and he he goes down and everything is loaded up and it's all big uh, bald and burlap stuff. And then, you know, it's the United States, so it's market driven. Yeah, here is also market driven. Uh, with uh, this type of machinery you mentioned, 
Um, there are several companies that are doing this, but the upfront cost is very high uh, because the are very expensive. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we talk a lot uh, on the podcast and we've had some guests that uh, are doing so much more with the uh, fabric uh, bags. A lot of times it's recycled polyester type product or polypropylene fabric bags that also function to do root pruning by air. So there's, you know, it's a system that is limiting the girdling of the root within the plastic pots. Uh, a lot lighter. Well, I, I don't know how well they recycle, but at least it's a plastic product that's been repurposed at least one time. They're shipping out smaller stock that is uh, has a little bit more attention to the culture at the nursery in terms of a little additional pruning. And they just are coming out healthy and vital. And also because they're easier to transplant, you, you continue to get better and better return on transplant success. Do you have anything like that over there, John, the, the uh, bags? Called uh, air pruning system? It's air pruning system, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we use that uh, uh, mostly for you know, producing seedlings uh, for using in the mountain air. So we, we want to have a strong natural roots. Okay. The other thing is uh, our nursery industry it became so reliant on plastic pots and a lot of associated headaches because you'd buy that great looking red maple, uh, but it turns out that that red maple stayed in the pot an extra 18 months. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, extracting it only to find this, uh, you know, circuitous uh rat's nest of roots that you basically have to destroy the root system if you if you have any hope of uh successfully transplanting so the air the the fabric bags that we're describing i sure hope that more and more people adopt them because uh, there's a lot of upside to them. yeah yes yeah, that's, that's a good technique yes i was reading about the great green wall using the um Metasequoia glyptostroboides, the Dawn Redwood in China. And is that is that really built? Did they 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 did they plan it? Do you know anything about that? The Great Green Wall? Yeah, they call it the Great Green Wall of China. Uh, and it's all Metasequoia, supposedly Metasequoia. Oh interesting. Uh, I probably don't know that place. <laughs> But the metasequoia is uh, uh, very popular in China uh, for its beautiful foliage uh, and uh, very light shape, uh, shape of trees. It, it can be planted, but it has to be planted in size with uh, less microclimate. Right, right, because it gets too cold up there for it. Yeah, yeah. Having the ones here, I have one on my, you're going to laugh when I tell you this, but I have a little cutting left from uh, the university that survived, a tiny little cutting. It was only a couple inches. It's now about 10 feet tall on top of a patio table wow. in a big container anchored down with bungee cords. And I look out there every day and think, wow, look at that tree. It is the most amazing tree. Yeah. It is. Yeah. 
It is the most amazing tree. Yeah, it's precious. Yeah, it looks really beautiful. Yeah, the species. Now, who who claims uh, rights there in terms of its uh, native habitat? Metasequoia comes from China. Okay. It comes from China, right? Yeah, that's They right. went back to find it. What what province was it discovered in, uh, John? Uh, I think it's in Hubei province. It, it's in the uh, central south part of China. Um, it, actually, right. the, the place is called uh, Mo Dao Xi. So that's a Metasequoia get its name. So it's named after the place, Metasequoia. Oh, what is it? What's the town called again? Mo Dao Xi. Mo Dao Xi. Okay. <laughs> Metasequoia, but yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. oh, so we, we got the lowdown now. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> wow. So now there's other, something else I wanted to ask you about. You do ecological remote sensing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, okay, so the most sensing is a big field. Basically, you, you use all the satellite uh, images uh, to analyze uh, what happened on the, on the Earth. Uh, so if I combine this technique with my profession, so uh, urban forestry, urban college, uh, I'm trying to uh, use the satellite images to capture patterns uh, and also uh, to quantify benefits of you know, the urban green space uh, for the urban forest. Uh, for example, we, uh, I can use remote sensing to discover uh, how uh, planting trees contribute to reduce the urban heat islands. Uh, if we compare the before and after uh, temperature difference, I can you know, reasonably attribute uh, this difference to you know, uh, tree planting uh, programs. So I think that's probably uh, what I use this technique for. So, so would it be, it would be much like our GIS sensing or like when we take photos, flyovers, we can actually see what, what the trees are doing, it would be very similar to that, only yours is using satellite. Yeah, actually, you know, I use uh, images from different sources, so like satellites, uh, such as UAVs, they provide uh, images that cover different aspects of the uh, ground surface. Uh, for example, I can, you know, have those uh, infrared images, uh, which you can use to study, you know, the water uh, status of the vegetation. So you can see whether it's under water stress, or it's, uh, uh, it's okay doing well. Um, so, yeah. There's so many new technologies that are helping all of us in, in all that we do in, in so many different fields that, you know, we kind of almost wonder how we live without it, knowing what we have now. I, I remember early on when we first met, you were doing some work at Temple doing surveys, tree surveys, and you did one in Morrisville, Pennsylvania, and you had two students working on it. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about that project? Because it always stuck in my head that, you know, you were kind of like the first person that I know taking inventories of trees way back when. Well, that's a really nice project. It has some, so many good memories with it. Uh, so first, uh, you mentioned two students. Uh, they are non-traditional students. So I still remember his, their names, are Rebecca and Jen. So Rebecca is a registered uh, nurse. 
so she works in the hospital, and uh, and uh, you know at the same time, you know she came to a temple to study in the horticulture, and Jane, uh, uh, used to work in a big company as an accountant, and he went to temple to study in the horticulture. I think later he became the the chair of the American Chess Lot of Pennsylvania or Philadelphia. So anyway, he's like, you know, changed his uh, career totally. And both of them are in their, you know, 50s when they, you know, started with me. And they are very responsible and really interested in urban forestry. And Rebecca also owns, I think, owns the Urban Forestry Fellowship. She is uh, the first one in Temple University who who owns this award. Um, so that project is a tree inventory project. We, we want to find out uh, how many trees are there and which uh, tree CBs are there are. Well, I, I, I'm not so sure it's uh, the first one uh, in that region, but as I say, it's uh, the first one that is funded by the uh, tree vitalized grant. Uh, um, and also it's the one that involves uh, university and also the local government. To, to work on the uh, tree resource uh, in those small townships uh, in Pennsylvania. Yeah, it, it's a fun project. And, uh, well, and, and Marsville still is very active in greening. Um, I, I was mentioning to you earlier, I still get their emails about when they're having their greening programs and their volunteer days. And so I think that having something like a tree inventory certainly does help a community understand what they have as a resource and how important it is to have resources like that because trees are valuable and from a human health perspective uh, it certainly gives you a, an insight as to uh, how healthy a community is by how green it is right i think that was that was really uh, very impressive at least it was impressive to me when i when i first met you when you were working on that project Oh, thank you. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, as uh, we have those, you know, new technology, so now you you can get uh, uh, this type of uh, tree inventory software, you know, freely uh, from the either from the USDA for service or from other uh, universal extensions. I think uh, people in those small townships they can they can do it. It doesn't require lots of uh, technology, and also for the tree identification. Now we have those free. Uh, apps you can use yourself and take pictures and identify the species uh, very accurately. All those te- new technology it can help you know people uh, in the small townships to manage their urban forests more efficiently. Do you do any projects like that in in China with your students? Oh yes, that's a good question. Yeah, <laughs> uh, <laughs> when when mentioned the the apps, actually we we run a you know citizen science project. Uh, uh, we, we developed a uh, uh, small app uh, that uh, you can use that in the most popular uh, social media platform uh, we call the WeChat in China. So it, it's integrated with the WeChat. So you just open, oh, yeah, you open your WeChat and there's a mini program and you can open it and you take pictures and the species will be automatically identified at a location recorded a percent. It will come to our uh, database. And you can see how many three species you, you identified, you recorded, and, uh, and that data from all over the China then become a very helpful data resource for us to study the tree diversity 
in a, you know, stages in time. Wow. That's citizen science at its best, right? Yeah. We're coming to the end of our show now. And how do you want to do the honors? Worldwide, do you have a favorite tree? Do you have a, a tree that your listeners should know about? My favorite tree, uh, you can see from my email account. So my email account is Larix. Larix. Ah, nice. <laughs> it's very beautiful. and But it's a, it's, it's a conifer, but it's shaded leaves, uh, you know, in, in the winter. So <laughs> amazing. That's a great call. Now, how does Larix do in Beijing or in and around? It's, is it more up in the mountains? Uh, we have a local native species uh, here uh, in Beijing, but okay. it's uh, around uh, 1,200 meters above the sea level. Uh, we still have, uh, you know, a natural, or, natural origin woods, a small, small patch there in the mountain. But getting back to your Larix, which is a larch, in case some people don't know, um, what's yeah. the species on your larch? What, like, what's its common name over there? Uh, we, it's called uh, Lost China uh, Larch. Lost China, China Larch. Wow. Okay. And so we don't have any over here, do we? Uh, probably not. Uh, because we, even here, we, we don't have much success to introduce that to the low sea level our area. So you cannot grow very well uh, under, you know, like a 1,000. Uh, meters of oh, so it has to be mount it's a mountain species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Black code, yeah, moist. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Well, be careful with those red maples, John. Well, certainly. <laughs> yeah, people love them by here, you know, they love just the color red leaves, you know, autumn. Well, it was so great having you on our show today and it was really great catching up with you and uh, talking with you and hearing about your successes and how wonderfully green Beijing is becoming and is as it continues to get greener. Pretty impressive to have, you said 74% of it covered? Uh, right now? Uh, yes. Well, right now uh, it's 51% uh, of the urban area. 51%. That's, that's very impressive. That's that is. Very... <laughs> Thank you for your work on that, Jim. Thank you so much. And we wish you continued success. Thank you, Eva, for inviting me. And uh, it's really a, a joy to talk with you, Hal. Thank you so much. We'll see you later. Take, Take care. care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank <laughs> you.